guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We have a fun episode for you guys today. We have Frank Hansowitz from Ed Pink Racing Engines. And on before the that, today. he had a huge career at Nissan Motorsport. Yeah, well. yeah. We have him on to talk about everything Nissan and driving in the '80s, and you know some experiences with Paul Newman and and uh, his his kind of exit from Nissan Motorsports and Ed Pink and developing for Singer. Great episode for you guys today. But before we get to that, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all of that to be sent right there to your doorstep. It really is kind of a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. It's something I always look forward to in my mailbox when I see the Petrobox come through. Yep, absolutely. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com, and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. Hi, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Good. I am here with my co-host, Jake. Hi, Frank. Okay. Hi, Jake. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. I uh, I saw an Instagram post the other day. Congrats on your on your retirement. Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm definitely trying to figure out how to enjoy it. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll find you got probably have some projects of your own you're working on, don't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. And one big one in particular. So I'll I'll stay busy. What what is it? What's the big one? I have a building a 1951 Mercury hot rod. Ooh, so the lead sled era. It's not a traditional lead sled at all. It's it's got a 565 inch big block. It's more pro touring style. <laughs> more go than show. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, not a tail dragger. It'll uh, it kind of violates all the traditional uh, Mercury features and stuff. But it's a car I want. So, but I've been working on it for years. But now I'll work on it virtually five days a week instead of one or two days a week. Well, it's tough to go to work, work on cars, work on engines and everything else, and then come back and work on your own projects. I mean, I'm sure you're just tired of it at that point. Yeah, exactly. Long, long days at Ed Pink Racing Engines and kind of a long commute, so it was hard to work on this at night very much. But now I'm working on it a lot and enjoying it very much. So where did you get your start with cars? What kind of inspired somebody that would end up at you know, Nissan Motorsport and pink racing engines and, and a guy that's putting a, a enormous motor in their Mercury. Where's this, where's the origin of this for you as a kid? Um, you know, my, my father, my parents were really not into cars at all. My father, um, he absolutely is why I have the work ethic I have, but he's had no mechanical skills really. What so was it I, about him that gave you the work ethic? What was, what's that? It, his work ethic rubbed off on me. The man worked extremely hard and and uh, to get everything good for a kind of large family to uh, to get to do what we did and stuff. So it's um, uh, but he 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 had didn't have much mechanical skills and and um, I just had a big interest in cars when I was a young kid and, and uh, as soon as I had a driver's license, I bought a car and then started working on it, started modifying them and and um, what was the first thing that felt fast to you? You know, when you're in that period, you're, you're buying your first car, you're kind of start moving on. You're like, Ooh, this is, this is fast, but it's not fast enough. Mm, kind of <clears throat> late sixties Camaros, big block Camaros had just come out. And, um, at that point, and I, and, uh, I knew somebody had one. It was definitely a fast car. Absolutely. Did you guys go like cruising anywhere back then? Cause this is California. So I'm imagining that's oh, yeah. the 69 Camaro out on the strip. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't have a nice Camaro, but but I did. Uh, I did go to Van Nuys Boulevard, Van Nuys Wednesday nights cruising. Definitely um, went uh, went drag racing, some local drag strips. Um, did a little bit of street racing. What was Van Nuys uh, like back then? When you're talking about cruising around, I'm oh, I'm, a, I'm was, a Minnesota boy. You know, uh, grew up in Wisconsin. Every, <laughs> we didn't have anything like was, that. It was every kind of customized car you could imagine. There were at that era panel customized surfer themed 
panel vans were big, low riders, a lot of lot of serious drag race stuff. There was all kinds of cars. Everything went there, went to Van Nuys Boulevard. I it kind of I feel like I look at the vans and I feel like the vans are something I could really get into. They just I don't know what it, I have, obviously I have no idea what star we should probably call a van guy at some point. But the, the well, whole we van, did the whole red cherry. Yeah, history. we looked into that's that. A, that's a story in itself, but yeah. So but it just seems like this really unique custom culture of the vans. Like who decided right. who was the first guy who decided they were gonna put Shag in a van? Like what was, yeah. uh, <laughs> what was his Wood deal? paneling, Shag carpet, yeah. the in the bucket, the captain's chairs in them, that kind of stuff. That was slotted mag wheels and stuff were that was a big thing here in the late sixties into the seventies and eighties. In Southern California when you have you have a very strong surf culture and they were very popular with that group. So you went for, eventually you ended up working with, uh, with Nissan, right? I mean, how did that, right. how did it come about? Were you working on other engines before that? Or were you working at shops or on the track uh-huh. anywhere? What was kind of the progression from I'm a, I'm, I'm trying to drive a Camaro around to, I want to do this for a living. Yeah. I, um, I went to 12 years of parochial, um, schools and when I graduated high school and Went told my parents I wanted to go to a Los Angeles Trade Technical College and be an auto mechanic. I'm, I'm sure they weren't excited about it at that time, but that's what I went and did straight out of high school. I did two years in an automotive program, and um, I did good at it. And they were very good about uh, um, placing good students there and stuff. And I had talked with them about. Uh, I was intrigued. We had toured and I was very intrigued by General Motors had a research center in Burbank at the time. And I thought it'd be a great place to work. And um, what was technical school like back then? Because you think of it now, you imagine it's just you're basically a, you're on a fault finding mission with a computer, right? If, <laughs> yeah, if no, then, just, no, if, then yeah. what was it like? I mean, it's just it was I it was great because I had a little bit of skills and a little bit of knowledge. But um I learned an incredible amount there. It, it was a very structured format for how you went through the program there. And, um, and, and it was great. I, I really credit that with helping me a lot at all this. And, and, um, but then I, um, while I late in the attending there, I, uh, met a girl that had a 240Z. A friend of mine bought a modified Datsun 510. And the shop I worked nights at, uh, Dotson pickup truck showed up and it had the same trick overhead camshaft engine that was in the 510 and the Z. So he basically said, well, I got to impress this girl. So I got to start like, (laughs) I mean, you know, the biggest thing was I was impressed by her car. Yeah. My friend's 510, a pickup truck with an overhead cam engine in it. And I, I went back to the counselor that helped me get placed and said, I, you know, I found out Nissan's in Gardena. I, I want to work for those guys. They have neat stuff. So what and, was uh, it about, about those engines uh, and about those cars that kind of took you away from, <clears throat> you know, working for GM? What was it that really was like, wow, I, I like this. Yeah. No, I mean, being overhead cam engines and, and, um, side draft carburetors on a Z car, it, it, Z car was a fun car to drive. The modified 510 that my friend had was a great car. And what carburetor just, are those, what carburetors are on those Zs? That, that, that so they were standard with an SU. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And, um, but I just, I went back and said, and literally my counselor came back and said, okay, you have an interview. And I left, I left, I was done with a two year program at age 20 and, Went there and interviewed and got hired and went to work at Nissan when I was 20 years old. And what so, were you doing there at the time? <laughs> I was hired as a mechanic trainee, uh, servicing company and test cars, company vehicles that management drove and then test vehicles. But I really spent first several months there washing cars is <laughs> what I did. And, uh, and then um, progressed through being a mechanic servicing those, like I say, company cars, then uh, moved to being a mechanic in the engineering department and actually working on test cars. And, Why did they uh, want you to move from car washing to working on stuff like that? Because, I mean, that's like, well, uh, did you show some sort of aptitude? Did you like, oh, yeah. fix it? Like, some guy was, couldn't fix something, and you're just like, oh, well, obviously, yeah. it's this widget right here. It's what's wrong. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it was just a case that that's what happened. They, that's what I wound up doing as, a, as the entry-level guy there was 
um, was washing carts. And, and the plan was not to do that, but that's sort of what I did for a while. And then I started changing oil and servicing cars. Well, and that's what we call paying our dues. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. But it's, and, um, but I had a myriad of jobs in engineering. I was worked in quality control. I worked in, um, uh, and then I moved to a position as a field engineer where I traveled the country and I was 20, five years old or something had an expense account and and travel the country going to dealerships and stuff and fixing fixing cars that were troublesome cars that they couldn't repair sometimes once uh, an attorney got involved they i get sent there and fix the car and and um what what's the like what's a do you have a story of a common problem that was kind of a nightmare that nobody else could figure out that you just went out there and it was just no it's one of these you know in 70 five they introduced uh bosch jetronic i think oh, it was yeah. jetronic fuel <laughs> oh, yeah. injection on the 280z and it was That's there were CIS, a lot of driver right? ability. no it's that- not cis it's um it was a different system i it's it's not as bad as cis <laughs> personally <laughs> <laughs> but um it was um it was just a, a basic bosch electronic fuel injection system but it was troublesome but it being a young guy, it was pretty easy to adapt to that, maybe compared to the older guys in the engineering department. But worked on worked on quite a bit of that. And um, why what why was Bosch making two different injections at the time? Then, if you have this Jetronic and you have the CIS, what, was yeah. there just like different demand from different manufacturers? If- I think so. I think that's probably what drove it. Is and I think at that at well nineteen seventy five, I think Nissan made the smarter choice at that time. And, uh, yeah, I've owned a bunch of CIS uh, cars. It's either they work really well. I put yeah. I put fifty thousand miles. I have a seventy two nine eleven. I put fifty thousand miles yeah. on a three liter CIS. Never a problem. But I've right. had cars that are like, oh, the warm up regulator is bad. The yeah. the diesel right. valve is broken. And all this other stuff. Why 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 were these other manufacturers using this stuff? Yeah. It was junk, and there was something yeah. else. Yeah, no, I, I'm not sure why. I we we've only ever had one engine project, one Porsche engine project. Uh, uh, like a late seventies nine thirty turbo with CIS on it at um at the shop, and it was just a pain, absolute pain to get everything fixed and operating right. It so. seems like you you want to kind of compare it to MFI a little bit because it's this yeah, but it's right. Far, it's like why not just use MFI at that right. point? Yeah. If you're not going to have yeah, an exactly. oxygen sensor and you're not going right. to do all the things that close loop, yeah. yeah if it's not sure. going to be fuel injection, why bother? And I would agree. I would totally <laughs> agree that the, yeah, no, the MFI system works pretty damn good. So, uh, yeah, who knows? So, so what was, uh, how did you get into the motorsport? How did you kind of oh, transition into, here. I'm going to fly out to a, you know, this lawyer who's suing my, my dealership yeah. and I'm going to fix your thing. And all of a sudden you're, right. you know, doing, you know, IMSA stuff. I mean, that's a huge right. jump. Yeah. Oh yeah. So at the time, the motorsports department in Nissan was under, it was within the engineering department and I had just started this. Right. right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. The motorsports department in Nissan was never more than I think five people. Oh wow. And and, uh, at any time. And, um, let me think about it. Yeah. Five. And, um, (laughs) no, six, no, six. Yeah later became six and um but uh i had um i'd started amateur racing sports car racing and SCCA stuff and there was one of the i started with the Datsun roadster okay and um and then close to where i lived was uh, a very famous nissan race team electromotive i could walk from where i lived to their place i didn't even know where their shop was at the time but I was uh, asked to go there. I did. I got interested in what they were doing. I started helping them at night and and hanging around there and went to a couple of races they ran at and started doing that stuff before I was in motorsports. And then a position opened there and I replaced the engineer in that department and and um, went there initially as an engineer. And uh, that grew into a few years later into being the department manager in the uh, earlier mid eighties. And, uh, and then things just kept later, late eighties, 
the activity level. The marketing department wanted to support a performance image, and and that led to the start of the GTP program. And and what cars and, are in this GTP GTP program? Are we two eighty three hundred? No, no. The the GTP program was actually prototypes. Okay, that was uh, Porsche had nine sixty two, and and um, virtually all all the manufacturers were involved in that. It was a great era in GTP. And then what was it like going our, up against the nine sixty two? You know, because we obviously all know that how legendary that car yeah. was in motorsports. Oh, yeah. Was it just like were you guys at the engineering department? You and four other dudes, five dudes, going, man, how are we going to beat these guys? Yeah, it was the the thing that always went on in the motorsports department. It was more about strategy and and a plan. Yeah, a motorsports strategy that supported the marketing strategy that the company had, and then simultaneously, how do we? What categories and how much could we afford to spend? What categories and how are we going to win in those categories and achieve the results needed to support a marketing program at Nissan and. And, Sounds a little um, bit like you were hamstrung by that. Well, it, it, at that era, it was in the late 80s and into the early 90s. It was pretty good. Nissan was pretty successful, and uh, there was a big, a lot of support from senior management. Nissan internationally had a lot of motorsports activity at that time. A few years later, went through a period of like a 10-year stretch of being operating in the red every single year until they made their so-called alliance which with Renault, which was actually Renault taking over the management of Nissan. And as a result of the fact that they were in such financial straits and then things, then the motorsports program just became painful to operate under, uh, under the Renault management. So what were you guys racing in the, in the eighties? Um, <clears throat> They, so it would have been, you know, 1984 would have been the first year of a 300ZX. That was a car with a lot of focus on it. That's a car that um, Bob Sharp ran. Um, Paul Newman and Jim Fitzgerald driving those cars went on through the, from uh, 84 until the 88. And, um, and then also supported privateers in IMSA GTU classes. Um, had an off-road truck racing program, um, did both, uh, open, um, off-road desert racing and closed course stadium stuff. What was the um, open, open desert racing? Was that like Dakar or where did you guys go? No, uh, score was the primary sanctioning by at the time. The big, the big premier crown jewel race was the Baja thousand. Uh-huh. They also had the Baja 500 and they ran three or four races in the States. And then there was a second sanctioning body that uh, developed that raced a lot in um, uh, Nevada and Southern California score kind of focused more on racing in Mexico and, and, um, but there was a second series here in the States, but truck that all for quite a while within Nissan, the truck marketing group always uh, validated uh, research confirmed that, that truck owners were more motorsports, almost more motorsports enthusiasts, greater motorsports enthusiasts than sports car owners were in some regards. And mm. so they always supported an off-road program. What were you and, driving? Are you driving the hard bodies or what, what's yeah, the... Well, it started with a 720, then went to the hard bodies. Yeah. And, um, hard bodies are sweet. I still so, love those yeah. things when they're, yeah. when they're lowered and they're cruising around right. the opposite of obviously the desert stuff, but I, I yeah, love, right. I love me a hard body. Yeah. We did a program, uh, with the hard body truck in, oh, let's see, um, late eighties, I think early 1990, where SCCA had a pro series sponsored by Coors for the, was for the most part was the primary sponsor for most of it but race standard cab two-wheel drive trucks on road courses. That sounds and, fun. What do you run up was, against? S10s and Rangers or yeah, what? S10s, Rangers, Mitsubishi, Mazda was popular. Every All the compact truck manufacturers competed in that series with pretty damn good professional race drivers and pretty well, you know, even the Jeep ran their, their truck with, uh, shit, they ran the Unsers, drove those things. Um 
bunch of pretty famous people drove the Jeeps. The Ford program uh, was actually run by Steve Celine. Um, there's a lot of stiff competition. A lot of, it was great racing. I would you watch know, that great. right now. I would. Yeah, I think was, that sounds awesome. Was, you know, it was a little slow. The trucks were slow, but it was such tight racing that uh, made it pretty damn exciting. It was a lot of fun. Well, fast gets overrated. You know, it's just, especially, I mean, especially if you look at things today, I mean, let me, don't get me wrong. I love power. I love fast, but in terms of a a competition environment, it gets old so fast. Like if you watch formula one, it's just everybody, there's no competition. The same guy wins all the time. And it's just, everything's so fast. If you can get everybody in a bunch driving around trucks, give me that every day of the week. Yeah. Right. No. And and they did a good job of making it equal without truly calling it controlled competition kind of like what Na- my impression of nascar is very controlled competition right to make sure everybody is equal where with the trucks it wasn't so much that there was a little bit of freedom but they still i mean it was door handle door handle and bumper to bumper and drafting was a big part of racing with them because of the shape of the trucks and was, was there any sandbagging going on from people was there any kind of shenanigans going on with the truck stuff uh, no i don't think there was really sandbagging but there was there was a lot of um, questionable performances i'll we'll say from <laughs> that went on but i wouldn't call it sandbagging i would just call it suspicious <laughs> sudden of improvement in performance would go on periodically the so. whittington brothers weren't there were they <laughs> no <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. So you mentioned no. Bob Sharp and Paul Newman, and I've, yeah. you know, I've talked a, a lot about Paul Newman just because of my research that I've done with um, Dick Barber Racing and Garrettson Enterprises and, you know, the old War Horse, which is obviously one of the most legendary Porsche cars of all time. But uh, Paul Newman loved Datsuns. I mean, he was all yeah. over Datsuns. Was that by his choice? Or did you guys kind of bring him into the fold and he loved Datsuns later? Or how did that relationship turn out? Well, you know, he actually won his first national championship on the next Bob Tullius TR6, Triumph TR6. And um, that's where he started. And then I think, he I don't remember exactly, but because it happened in the 70s that he, uh, I think it was really a case of he and Bob Sharp developing a relationship and Bob being a Datsun Nissan dealer and having a, association with nissan racing for so long is what led to develop into that program and newman driving performance stepped up to the level that was appropriate to have him involved with bob's major factory program in both a little bit of imsa and then in uh seca trans am and stuff that uh that's what led to that but i really think it would it developed that bob bob sharp's doing is where it started it was before my time so. Yeah, I think uh, you know Dick always said that um, Paul was a was a good driver, and he yeah. how he knew is he never had to he never touched the boost knob. He would just go out there do oh, what he was told. Right. He would go out there <laughs> yeah. do what he's told, race the car, do the best he could, and bring it back. He always brought right. the car back. Yeah, no, he was he was very he was good for sure. He and I think exceptionally good considering some of what the chaos had go on around him at the racetracks. I don't know how anybody could focus with the amount of attention and activity and everything that, that went on. He couldn't even leave the pits him. at Lamont. There's photographers no, everywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah, to, exactly. He had to run no, over. Was, huh. Yeah, no, it was, there were insane things that went on at SEC Trans Am events with spectators and stuff. It were they just, just mobbing him or do you have any, yeah, do you exactly. have any stories of any of that? Uh, you know, there, there were things, um, you know, he had, uh, when they stayed in a hotel and under Bob Sharp racing's name in a block of rooms and everybody had all the rooms had somebody's name on it. Well, the crew chief and Paul always switched rooms. So if anybody <laughs> found out where Paul was and knocked on the door, they got the crew chief. Well, so, I mean, that must've been lucky. Yeah, uh, Paul Newman's <laughs> a good looking guy. I'm sure some yeah. of the guys that came or the gals, I should say, <laughs> yeah. that oh, came yeah. in, well, hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, but there were, you know, just the, the, People, people would just, for 10, 12 hours a day, just stand outside the tent at the side of the semi with the race cars and not move. They wouldn't leave. And, and it was just, it was insane to watch some it's of that one. bizarre. Just, yeah, oh, yeah. And, and then they'd scream and holler at him and all that madness going on. When he, did he just kind of ignore it and just? Yeah. Yeah, he did a great job of functioning in that. I could never imagine functioning in that environment. He did a great job at that. No kidding. It's just over, Down to earth, overwhelming. Very, 
Yeah, very down to earth guy. Really, I mean, you'd um I remember going to a we were like at a Howard Johnson's or something and going to breakfast in the morning and he shows up and he's got a bag with some pumpkin bread or something odd in it and he asked the waitress to toast the bread for him and everybody's ordering breakfast a couple minutes later you hear this blood curdling scream come out of the kitchen and everybody's looking around and it's like burn paul's bread (laughs) 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 this little girl comes back and she's looking at her feet and explaining what happened so but newman being i mean the guy gets up puts his arm around the girl and says let's go see the guy that burned the bread walks to the kitchen with him you know and just treated her as nice as could be kind of deal. And but uh, I feel like that's yeah, the best yeah. way to deal with your celebrity is is do things like, <laughs> let's just go in the kitchen. Me, if I yeah. said, hey, let's go in the kitchen, they're going to tell me to pound yeah. sand. Right. Yeah. Human? No, he walked back, you know, and, and I'm, you know, and, and I'm sure that was the biggest tip you've ever seen for it afterwards. Yeah. You know, it was just, I mean, down to earth, very nice man, for sure. So um, was, uh, what was the 300, what was its competitor back then? You know, what was it competing against? In, in Trans Am, there was a Ford had a factory effort. Chevrolet had a factory effort in Trans Am at the time. Um, some very sig- Pontiac was there. Some very serious privateer efforts supported by various manufacturers. But um would have been uh, Ford ran a Mustang and Chevrolet ran Camaros. Uh, Pontiac ran Firebird, uh, some Porsche, 924 Turbos were there with Paul White. Um, yeah, it was very stiff competition and multi-car teams. Everett, you know, some men, Ford had, Roush ran Ford's program at the time. And, and, uh, what would that have been, like, Miller, like a Capri or something? You know, they, over the years, they ran, ran a variety of things. The, the Mercur for a while, then... Mustangs mostly okay. after the McCurr deal, but um, it was stiff competition. Great racing, hundred mile race, which is essentially a sprint race, and um, a lot of very very good drivers. Lynn St. James was coming through there at that time. Willie T. Ribs, David Hobbs, uh, Chris Neifel ran there. Um, Willie you know, T. Ribs was uh, he was African American, right? Yeah, exactly. That's yep. that's that's mm-hmm. that's interesting yeah. back then. There wasn't yeah. a lot of African American drivers in America no, at that time. No, there wasn't, and he was very good, and uh, went on to really have a hell of a career with Dan Gurney in IMSA after that. But they, um, but no, it was it was very. They were great races for sure. Extremely stiff competition. What do you think kind of happened with Nissan Motorsport? Because you guys had such great success in the eighties and nineties. And then when I think about modern Nissan race cars, I kind of go to a blank and think of the Delta wing. Like, it's just like, you know, (laughs) it just kind of seems like it all went to shit. Yeah. The only thing Delta, the only thing Nissan about the Delta wing was the throttle body on the engine. Wasn't even (laughs) Nissan engines. So, but what's um, in there? What is it? What's the, it was based on a, I forget who somebody's world touring car engine. I forget which one, but, um, you know, the, so, Nissan stopped production on 300 ZX in 95, um, stopped on the 240 SX in 97, uh, didn't really have any performance cars. Um, Were they not selling or what was going on at Nissan at the time? Did they, could they not keep up? I mean, this seems to be the story today, right? We're still, we got the 350 or the 300 Z. It hasn't been updated in forever. They're just kind of dragging their feet with it. It seems like history is repeating itself. And, did they feel like they just don't need a sports car or what well, happened? You know, I have no idea when I was so excited to go to work there because all the products were so performance oriented, great stuff. And, and by the later nineties, mid, mid and later nineties, that stuff had gone away. They hadn't built anything really new The you know, the 300 ZX, the Z32 300 ZX was the car they had from, 89 to 95, which at that time, six years, seven years is a hell of a run for a model car. Now, as you say, they've, you know, it's been even longer for the 370Z for refreshing. But, you know, they, we actually wound up in 96, the decision was made for the Infinity Division to race in the IRL series, the Indy Racing League, uh, with the, you know, the, crown jewel of that being the indianapolis 500 and that's 
all there was for motorsports activity from 96 till uh, I left the company in 2001. I think they ended the IRL program in 2002. But, um, and that was a horrible, underfinanced, terrible struggle through that era with that program, especially considering the value of, of winning in that series. Right. Yeah, and, and, the, then, and the under or the devalue of doing poorly. Yeah. You know, exactly. Doing poorly is not, a, yeah. not great for anybody. Yeah. Right. And that, you know, that's how during that program is how I got to know Ed Pink. I actually Ed had been involved with Cosworth and Buick and, and Indy engines. And, and, uh, I went and, met with ed and ed became a major um factor to the infinity irl program and i worked with him for six years during that and when i had had enough of how that program was going and wanted to quit and they were talking about moving it to because of renault's influence they're talking about moving the program to a base in england or in, yeah in england and um that's when i said i'd had enough and and uh told ed that did you fight and, it did you Tell them it was the wrong thing to do, or you just don't do this, or was it yeah, kind of just yeah? But there, it, it was you? a decision. Yeah, it was a decision that made the very top, and so um, and uh, and I decided to um, I was gonna I didn't have anything lined up. I was quit. I was done. It was just such a nightmare program, and um, and that's when Ed asked me to come run the shop. And, well, I want to get in. I got one so, more question on Nissan yeah, before we get sure. into the transitioning yeah. on Ed Pink is. You know, I don't, if you look at, I think Adam Carolla has more significant Nissan cars than Nissan Museum does. <laughs> and yeah, I just. Yeah, uh, potentially, I, yes. Now I don't they, understand. They recently got rid of something. Yeah. Why does Nissan not get more into their heritage with not even motorsports, but just talking about, mm-hmm. you know, Datsun and the 510 and then mm-hmm. 240 and the 280 and all these cars in the 300 that were just monsters of their time and they're beautiful and they're well done and the marketing materials were great i was just looking at some ads and in a in a playboy from 1981 and there's these great Datsun ads in there or Mm -hmm. nissan ads and i just what happened why why do they not (laughs) care about their heritage it just seems as everybody else porsche is going all off on the heritage volkswagen has this crazy classics department mazda like you could buy anything you could ever want from a miata brand new right now but my buddy has a 300 zx and he will not drive it because nissan doesn't support the car in any way so it sits in his garage because if something happens it's done it's over yeah why do they what's the problem you know i i can't speak to what's going on there i haven't been there and you know left there 20 years ago and uh, i guess i'm just been there (laughs) and you know and, and i just stopped I literally have to say, I just stopped paying attention. It was, um, it was kind of a screwed up mess for a few years after I left in the motorsports and then they just eliminated, there is no motorsports department and, uh, they just eliminated that activity there. And I, and I can't speak to why I, well, Volkswagen just did the same yeah. thing. They, they cashed out their motorsports department too. Yeah. But they've got, they're mixed in with so many yeah, other, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's so many other brands and stuff. Right. They've got other avenues right. to pursue the yeah. research that they need. And stuff right. like that. So who's Ed Pink? Yeah. You know, we look at Ed Pink racing yeah. engines. Who is Ed Pink? You know, Ed, Ed Pink's a, a guy that, uh, became incredibly famous in the 60s 70s and then started the 80s um building drag race engines top blown fuel dragster funny car engines and and uh, solidified his reputation doing that uh, unbelievably successful through that era and but then nhra wally park started the nhra and they started a touring series and and the competitors would live on, like they do now. They live on the road. They had to take care of their own engine programs themselves. So that sort of left Ed out of doing much of that anymore. But he had an association with uh, Vels Parnelli Jones, who at that time had a, a drag race, funny car, drag race car, Indy car, and Formula One program. And, um, so he, <clears throat> Cosworth, Parnelli was, in his organization, were really the first guys to ever modify a Cosworth engine and go to Indianapolis. Then Cosworth saw that as a great business opportunity, came to the U.S., their British company. They came to the U.S. 
mile away from Bells Barnelli Jones. This place opened a facility and hired a bunch of guys from Bells Barnelli Jones and started Cosworth USA for the IndyCar program. Now, did they bring they, British guys over here, or did they hire American dudes? They hired they hired mostly Americans. There were okay. some Brits, but they hired and they hired a lot of guys out of Bells Parnelli Jones who knew Ed <laughs> from the drag race engines. So those guys at Cosworth didn't have a facility. They had a shop with some toolboxes, no no machine equipment, no dynos. So they started having machine work done at Ed's and started ha- dynoing Cosworth Indy engines at Ed Pink's. Just, how it all started and that led to ed building those engines also in addition to cosworth what they did there and so he did cosworth engines through and you know he didn't he won the indianapolis 500 and and built a lot of engines there and then cosworth brought changed the structure of that program and developed a lease program where the teams didn't own engines and you had to lease engines from cosworth and they were in total control of the engines and once again, Ed was out of that program, and uh, about that time, he started. Uh, he did some stuff. Did a product program with Pontiac for motorsports. Hold on, for, hold on. I just want to touch base back on this lease thing. Why would yeah. why would a company lease the race engine? Did they want to do that? Don't is there oh, less yeah. overhead for them? What's the? No, no, it's more profitable, and you control all the technology. Currently, at, in Indianapolis racing, currently that's what's going on with both the Honda and the GM engine. Those are both lease programs. Okay. The, 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 they have total control. They they have a representative in the pits. You you can't even start the car without somebody from one of the two manufacturers being there. And, and are they, uh, the race teams like this? This is fine with them, or would you know? To I think to rate to race teams in IndyCar racing, the engine is just kind of more of a spacer that holds the front and back of the car together and they expect it to operate. Um, they expect it to operate trouble-free and they, you know, the, the, uh, both GM and Honda are good at that right now. And, um, you know, and they get a strong signing lease. You get a lot of technical support. There's benefits both way, but primarily it's, it's it makes it more financially viable for the manufacturer. Right. By going that route. So. What do they do with the engines when they're off a lease? It's not like you can go to the dealership and get a, you know, buy the, buy the, like you do with a, a car. You're like, oh, this one just came off lease. It's never been abused. Perfect. Where well, it's not really the case with a race engine. I'll take one of those yeah. and throw in my own C, old C10 or something. <laughs> yeah. No, they, um, they strictly control all their engines, everything about them. They, and they're, that's one of the beauties of it is that uh, the lease program is expensive, but you also get, exceptionally good engines all the time and they right. mileage out major components and everything's new and and uh you know there's there's benefits to it for sure and um do these things end up on ebay ever what's <laughs> no, the, what's the story no, where do they go no, when they're done not not the current not the current generation of turbo v6 stuff you won't find any i don't think you'll find any of that around it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future as far as uh because you really doesn't do you any good to buy a used indie car if you're a collector if you can't get an engine for it so right hmm. down the road it'll be interesting to see where it all goes so so what did you how did you end up with uh working with ed pink engines yeah well so at the end of the infinity irl program when i quit ed asked me to come to the to work for him so i did and as a general manager and uh didn't reshape he you know taking the him being out of the infinity engine program indie program also left a big void for him for workload and income and um and i helped him we um moved into it uh doing a hell of a lot did a few auto manufacturer related truck and sports car programs smaller ones um did built a lot of probably 150 USAC midget engines based on a Ford, uh, four cylinder, uh, based engine, um, did silver crown engines, USAC silver crown V8 engines. And, um, uh, and then developed in about 2003 or four Toyota wanted to participate in USAC racing. Um, and, uh, they wanted to do, a uh, uh, best we could possibly instead of 
doing on a budget, build the best bullet we could for them for USAC midget stuff. And that was a great program, went on for four, three, four, five years. Uh, Nothing like going to one of those races and just having dirt in your teeth. Yeah, no, they're uh, used to right now, midget in the last couple of years, USAC midget racing has just become spectacular. It's always been good, but now it's at a level that is just amazing. Jake, have you ever been to anything like this? These midget racing? I've been to dirt track circle races, but I don't think the midgets. Yeah, I don't know that I've seen. I've seen things that look like them, but they're probably not. They're they're more. You say it's, it's really gotten good in the last few years. What changed? You know, I'm not sure why it's, um, why it's changed is just going through a spurt and then I, it'll carry on. It's a former racing, very traditional, but, um, and you know, there's, there's a dirt track in every small town all around America. So there's right. racing going on constantly, but the, the national level of USAC midget racing is just amazing how good it is. And it's developed products, Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart, Casey Kane, right. uh, Kyle Larson, all those guys, you know, and the thing is, 900 pound car, extremely close competition, not the best handling car. And you're on a very, in the dirt, you're on a slippery changing surface that, uh, and you can't afford contact. You have to race incredibly close together and not have any contact. And now the way the NASCAR cup series has gone, it's the same thing. You, it used to be a day, a time when the way you got from the back to the front and NASCAR was bump and run and push people around. Well, aero is aerodynamics are so critical. You can't afford to damage the front corners of the car anymore. Interesting, so man. guys that come out of midget, you, you come out. I mean, let's be honest. A NASCAR cup car is not the best handling car. It's a giant <laughs> tank. And a midget is a very lightweight, small, poor handling car on a running on a slippery surface and extremely close competition. Those guys that's why you see so many guys going out of USAC midgets. They don't go to Indy cars anymore like they did in the 60s. They they go to NASCAR, and there's a reason why. And there's a lot of guys in midget racing now that are very talented that are looking down the road and want to be in NASCAR. Well, it sounds like this is a lot like the American version of Jensen Button starting out as a go-kart driver in, yeah, exactly. in England. So this yeah. is, they all come yeah. up with kart racing. That's why they're all amazing at that. And all the Norwegian yeah. and Swedes and stuff, they're all doing rally Rallies. out in the gravel roads. Yeah. So all those guys are hitting up the, the rally circuit. And here we are driving yeah. around on dirt and ovals. Yeah. It's the same, yeah. it's the same oh. comeuppance. Exactly. So right. how did you guys end up, you know, well-known for building the motors for a lot of the singer stuff and Cosworth yeah. and you guys, I think collaborated some to do some things. How, what was the conversation? Like the first conversation where there's, Hey, we're building these, you know, these, these custom nine elevens. We need you to build an engine. Were you skeptical? Did you think this is awesome? Or what no, was that first no. thing? Like? <laughs> well, first thing before we were involved, singer was at Cosworth. They were doing a 3.8 liter engine. Cosworth was building them, and right. and what had happened was Cosworth. That was what Cosworth USA was doing after they weren't involved in Indy cars, and then Cosworth USA closed, and um, we had done at Ed Pink before I was there. But Ed Pink, I don't know if you remember, there was a huge BF Goodrich sponsored 962 program in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. That was very successful. No, I was still trying to figure out yeah. the best place right. to park my parents' car okay. with my girlfriend <laughs> at that time. <laughs> so Ed Pink did the engines for Jim Busby's BF Goodrich 962 program. And that was another one of those things that he'd never done one, but they went from never doing it to being very successful at it. So there was some Porsche experience there, and there had been the periodic 962, 935 engine come through the shop. And done some 911s once in a while, mixed in with everything else we were doing at the time. And I, I knew of the Singer. I'd seen the Singer car and was, because I'm a car guy and impressed by quality and customization, I was very impressed by this. So I was, I'd seen the Singer. I knew who they were. I knew a little bit about what they were doing. And lo and behold, when Cosworth closed, they told Singer to 
go to Ed Pink Racing Engines. Well, Singer did a little bit of due diligence and said, those are drag race engine builders. We had not built a drag race engine in 25 years. Right. But they were still labeled as drag racers because Ed's so famous for that. So, and, um, so uh, then they went to Porsche Motorsports and uh, to inquire about them doing the engines. And Porsche Motorsports said that due to the structure of the motorsports department and stuff, they couldn't yeah, do streetcar engines. I could never see that working out. Yeah, right. I agree. And um, and they told them to come to our shop. So finally, they <laughs> met Maz Fawzen, um Maz Fazwa, sorry, um, uh, came over one day, called and came over. And I knew, you know, I, I was interested in what he had to say. And he was there 30 minutes, started taking him on a tour, talking about what they were doing. And he just said, stop. He says, I'll come back tomorrow. So he literally came back the next day and he had Rob Dickinson with him. And same thing. We're on a short term, a short tour through the shop. And Rob just says, can we go back to your office? And we went back, sat down. And he says, this is what we want to do. We want to build a four liter engine and um, to offer and, and, um, are you interested in doing this? I said, absolutely, we're interested in doing it. So we uh, are these engines. Were we they got. built off the case of the original yeah. nine six four engines? Yes, yes, they are. They're they're on the three point six case from the nine sixty four, and um, uh, so we we have a bespoke, dedicated, you know, unique. It's not a Porsche crankshaft, it's a unique crankshaft, and um what's unique about we, it? what do you guys change is it is the four is the is it stroke that gives you that extra displacement or a bit of both so the four liter porsche crankshaft's 80.4 millimeter stroke and the crankshaft we developed is the same but we made some feature changes to it that make it better and um, we made uh smaller rod journal diameters so it reduced the um rotating mass a bit but the biggest thing is let the the crankshaft we have packages with the gt3 oil pump into the 3.6 case where the four liter porsche wouldn't do that as a combination and but um so we we uh we started you know they originally said they were they thought maybe the four liter engine would become 20 25 of the mix of their engines well it it's more like 95% now. Right. But we start out, you know, and their production was slow. That was six years ago. Their production was quite slow back then. And so there weren't many, but we developed it and, and it was, it was a good deal. And what, were know, some of the, what are some of the signature characteristics of that four liter engine other than the crankshaft? I mean, what are we talking for power, red line, stuff like that? Yeah. You know, it's uh, 7,300 RPM maximum speed. That's Singer's decision to use that number. Uh, it's 390 horsepower. Um, Are you saying that you, you will sanction much higher RPMs? Is that what I just heard? <laughs> well, uh, we test, <laughs> when we dyno all the engines, we test a higher RPM than that. Right, right. And um, when when uh, when uh, any engine, but when a Singer engine, in particular leaves our shop and is off the dyno it will have an easy life after that we our <laughs> dyno testing is is not subtle and um but we do turn it higher just to be sure that everything's like it should be and but um they're you know they're 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 built out of absolutely the best of everything there were all singer all the conversations we have with singer are about how to fix some little subtlety that's a small problem, how to make it better. There, It's always been how to make it better. It's, it doesn't ever uh, seem like there's any compromise. It's just do the best no, thing that you right. can. Exactly. And and having a customer with that mindset is great. You know, it's really, and we put a giant effort into those engines. We, the, the processes and procedures we have in place at the shop to, to, uh, to be sure that they're as perfect as we can make them to be sure they're all exactly the same performance is the same. You know, it isn't just a case of collect all the parts and bolt it together. It's, you know, sample cylinder heads are airflow tested The even though you know that the combination of parts is going to result in this compression ratio, it's still measured on every single engine. Everything is those engines are built just like a race engine. 
all the practices and procedures and the quality of the parts. Do you ever get sad when you see them just pretty much get driven to, from people's garages to cars and coffee? <laughs> and it's just over and over. It's almost like you yeah. meet a beautiful girl, you take her out to dinner, you buy her everything, you you know, you, you have great conversation, and then you go home and you go right to bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I will, I, yeah, I will admit, uh, you know, in... Um, 2019, after the Monterey Historics, they rented the track and had a customer day at Laguna Seca. And shoot, I don't know, there might have been 30 of them, 30 singers there, all out hammering around the racetrack. And, you know, something in the back of my mind says they're thinking, well, you know, 30 cars, God only knows how many miss shifts, how many over revs, all this <laughs> kind of stuff. You know, I sure hope we have a good day here and don't have any problems. And, you know, and even, you know, there's an introduced to one of the owners and he literally looks you in the eye and he says, I'm, I'm going to beat your engine up today. <laughs> yeah. And you think out so, of 30, something's yeah, got to blow up, and, right? I mean, that's yeah, and nothing. It's been perfect. And that's awesome. Went to, went to Laguna for that road and track cover story on the singer where Lee Keen did all the driving. And, uh, I mean, he wrung the car's neck for two days. man can drive. I, I was in yeah. his safari car with him driving around in Georgia just with my, just clenched. I mean, it was, <laughs> the dude is yeah. at the edge of a mountain and going sideways. Yeah. And I'm like, well, here we go. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I agree totally. And, but, you know, it's, it speaks well to the combination and also the, the quality and the effort put into the engine program by Ed Pink Racing Engines. That's it's really, I mean, they, like I say, they're all the best parts and then all the best practices and procedures to be sure they're as good as possible. And it's proven we've done, I think about 130 engines for Singer and um, virtually no problems at all with them. And, and uh, you know, and I know there, there's one car that is kept at a, um, one of those membership country club racetracks. And I, as I understand, the car's never been driven on the street. It's only driven on the racetrack for its entire life. That's so awesome. It's, that speaks good for how well it's gone. So if I, let's pretend it's just me. Okay. And here yep. I am, I've got X dollars, which is a blank check. And I wanted to come have you guys build a bespoke engine like that for me. What does yep. something like this cost? Cause obviously we can't look at the singer and go, yeah, well, what's the engine in that car cost? We can't really, can't really do that. Yeah. Cause it's a whole package. We, but if I was going to do it, how much right. would I be spending? Just and, and people call. We get <laughs> there's five, seven calls or emails a week where somebody wants a four liter engine like the singer. So we know what, it, and we've done a few for people. Um, Why and, not? You guys build um, engines. Let's do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now we we have uh, the one. The most recent one we did is for a guy that's had probably five Porsche projects come through our shop. Um, you know we got three or four customers that are modest i mean modest being i suspect 20 porsches um but have good good little collections of significant cars and we've done multiple engines for them but we did a four liter for one and, and i would say if we provided the core engine and then did we my recommendation is to do give up another 10 horsepower less than a singer and we could fill in below the curve with torque and acceleration greater than the singer combination now um so we did one for this guy like this turned out just as we thought it would and with us providing a core engine it's about a probably about 120 125,000 dollar thing well there you and, go jake uh, your 2.2 t engine yeah, yeah throw this in my 1970 that would be yeah. so great to have a yeah. 1970, like just a narrow body, just a, the doors are out of alignment, but yeah. it's got that four liter. Yeah. That would just, I will yeah. start saving my pennies. <laughs> I'll tell you what, if you, you know, that the singer is 20, I think 2,700 pounds or something. And, uh, I've only ever ridden him ridden. I drove one and rode in one at, uh, Laguna Seca at that singer appreciation day. I actually drove their in-house test car. And, uh, and I rode with in it later with, uh, uh, Jay, or, uh, Richard Tuthill. And, um, it was, um, it's staggering at, in that big car, how fast it accelerates. So I, you know, for, I don't kept thinking of is how can this be so fast with only 400 horsepower, 
but it's amazing how quick it is. And and if you put one into an early model light car, I suspect it'd really be exciting. Yeah, it'd just be a, <laughs> your, your hair would be on fire. Now I looked yeah. at um, I talked to you earlier, and I did not know this because I I don't I didn't see it when I was reading. But you guys built the engine in the new ACS the the the, yes. the new study yeah. that they're that they're doing. What Part is that, what is that engine? Yeah. That is a 3.6 liter twin turbo uh, engine from a 964. Um, it's um, it's the same. It's a individual throttle body, drive by wire, throttle control, MoTeC management system. Um, uh, great, great package. Um, it was more. It kind of started as a study for the future for Singer, and wound up going to this project, but. Um, you know, they're running it right now, I think in the 450 horsepower range, but, um, you turn the boost knob, it's 600 horsepower. Yeah, I was going to say, what's and, qualifying numbers for that? Thing? Yeah, the, yeah I'm sure it's, it's past 600, but I think it'd be comfortable. It's 600, close to 600 horsepower on pump gas. Um, great engine, great, great package. It's just like the rest of the Singer product line in the quality, you know, we're, we don't go to the mall catalog and look up piston and cylinders that are on the shelf there. We, all the mall pistons we use for Singer stuff and projects like that ACS and other custom Porsche engines we do, we, we draw a piston, have it made our specifications and, and, uh, you, and you work with a great vendor, extreme cylinder heads for their, uh, a very unique and, um, cylinder head combination and a uh, lot of work in valve train development and camshaft choices and leads to something that really runs great. And that's that's a lot of dyno there. time, right? That's all right. Well, yep. let's change the camshafts yep. out, put it back on the dyno right. tomorrow. Yep. yep, exactly. Or change them on the dyno. That's what we were doing. Yeah. Why not? Just pop the timing covers right off and yeah. away you go. Right. I suppose that's, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and it's, um, but it, and, and it comes from having, you know, there are engine builders and then there's engine development companies and Ed Pink Racing Engines is an engine builder, but also an engine development company and, you know, has 60 years of experience. And most of the people that are there have been there for a really long time and, and bring a lot of knowledge to what's going on. A lot of gray haired people work there, but they sure have a hell of a knowledge base, but that's how you come to these combinations that work so good. Is with right. all that knowledge and experience. And my biggest complaint with the ACS is I, I kind of look at it and go, wow, that looks like uh, it belongs on the movie Martian, right? It's just, it's so like overdeveloped in terms of a design concept. And my fear was that it wouldn't ever be used, but you said that they're going to try and use it, right? They, they, Richard was talking about the Nora 1000, which I can't imagine doing it with a car that looks like that, but they, um, I, you know, after where is that race? Where does about, that take place? The Nora 1000 is, um, uh, is running Baja. It's actually a thousand miles, but it's over, I think a four day period. So it's, it's run more kind of in the concept of how Dakar is run, where you run 250 miles for the day and then you're, you're, you're you know, you stop and, uh, stay in a hotel and run 250 miles the next day. And it's, more of a tour it's it's racing but it's a little bit more of a tour than it is out and out racing well i I happen to love the baja thousand because it's as fast as you can go for a thousand miles non-stop right and uh, you know the you can do a thousand miles in baja and not have a flat that's a lot to ask for a privateer guy right exactly (laughs) but you know that the nora the nora 1000 is the real deal well, I, I, sure. I look forward to seeing that thing be used by somebody. You know, it's there's so many, right. you know, expensive things that just get built and put away just because mm-hmm. they're too, they yeah. become too precious. You right. know what I mean? I, just, I truly believe that you'll see that thing compete someplace. Absolutely. I, I, if, I like if not that. Multiple, if not multiple places from what I understand. So what would be interesting would be to see if they can somehow get that car or maybe they do a, a version of that car where it can actually be put into a class to compete with other things. Because I think that's yeah. the that's the ultimate expression of something right. like this yep. is is actually right. being able to prove you're better than something else. No, <laughs> because no, that's, I'm, that's, I'm yeah, that's what I'm it's all, all about. for yeah. No, I like competition where there's 
a full field and it's going to be hard and right. making the, making the top 10 is good. Making the top five is really good. And thinking you're going to win is tough. And, right. Even finishing sometimes know, is a challenge right. when we're talking about racing yeah. like that. Exactly. So for sure. Well, Frank, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk about all this, man. It sounds like it's been a, a fascinating ride. Oh yeah. No, I've, I've had a great career, you know, not many people get to have, uh, you know, job that's the same as their hobby. Like I have, I'm very happy with what I've done. I've really, you know, I've only worked for two companies in 47 years, but I really enjoyed being at both of them. And it's been great for sure. Well, and have- now you can finish your Mercury. Yeah, that's it. That's, that is the plan. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, text me so. a few pictures. I want to see that thing. Okay. I'll send you a couple pictures. All right, man. All right. I really appreciate you coming okay. on the podcast. All right. Okay, guys. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you take care of yourself. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Awesome. I mean, come on. Awesome stories. Yeah, awesome stories. And it just, I just, I think of like the the racing Nissan did and, and, you know, it's, I still feel like it's such a shame. It is. It it sounds like it all fell apart. Well, and and someone in the marketing department just needs to say, look, we can just, all we have to do is look in our back catalog and promote the things that we did in our heritage and what this company is built upon. You know what they could do is they could re-release when they they have a this is one chance where they can rewrite who they are. This yeah. transitionary period right now, right? But before we get to that, what have you got for us? Let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it's a simple, foolproof, two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on oberkcarcare.com, but also on detailedimage.com and carsupplieswarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. Okay, what I mean is that we have this transitionary period where we're going from the internal combustion engine to electric. uh, electric. Right. They have a chance to redefine who they are. This is like their last chance, if you think about (laughs) it. They're not, we know they're not doing well. Right. You know, we've been through it on the news stories many, many times. They're in financial straits. Yeah. You know, it's it's not good over at Nissan. So what do you do? Maybe pare things down a little bit and come out yep. with the dots in 510. Just and come it's out an with, EV. And it's an EV. It's a sedan and a coupe. And it's kind of They maybe, could re-release the dots in brand. You're right. They that would could. Be awesome. They could re-release the dots in brand as the EV and be like, bam, yep. we were awesome. We're awesome again. Yeah. Buy our shit. Right now, <laughs> that would be the tagline: is buy our shit right now. <laughs> and I, I don't know if it we would be... we didn't even get into any of the JDM stuff too, like the Nissan Skyline, that whole line. Yeah, that all that stuff is would be you know, well, the the, the GTR is the Skyline, right? I mean, we I could, know, but still the kind original of stuff is where it's at. Yeah, and with all the throw, everybody loves throwback everything right now. Right. We need to get to the point where we are we are future fetishists right now. Society, You're right. It is this, it, everything needs to be the future, right? It's either got to be the future or it's got to be like, I love vinyl records. They're fucking great. You know, we can't, where's this? Why are we doing something for now? Right. Where is the, where is, why can't we just let, what would be a great idea for us now? Why are we trying to be like, this is what the future is going to be like. It reminds me of the 1980s where every movie was a sci-fi with Arnold Schwarzenegger on Mars. Right? Everyone was looking forward and like the designs were all super futuristic looking. Do you think and they, people felt the way we do now about the 80s? Like, why does everything look so stupid? I were don't they, think many people thought they that were way still, now or I, I think they were you're kind every, of alone in your opinion as well. I might be, but everything then was still a derivative of something that already existed. They weren't necessarily trying mm. to... To, I mean, you still had like, this is a speedometer, this is a tachometer, this is the water gauge, the transmission's right here. And it was all kind of like a derivative, like a, an extrapolation or an extrusion of what was already mm, came before it. But think of like all the digital dashes that were brand new and super futuristic. That's and true. all the design That's was true. super angular that you hadn't seen before. A little bit in the 70s with the wedge shapes, but like, look at the DeLorean and it was so crazy futuristic and it's this new material. But it's still developed in parallel with what had, was already there. We're t- this whole thing is like new. It's new. It's a new drivetrain. It's it's right. a new it's a new way of traveling. You don't have to. Sometimes you have cr- like uh, lane assist and auto driving and all this stuff. It's like this new parallel. It's like this split that's happened, and it's and it's running right alongside 
current reality and we have the the, <laughs> the, the future reality rhino. the parallel parallel reality of motoring is over here now and everybody is on this side going wow look at that parallel reality that people are experiencing over there with teslas id3s other hot like other plug-in hybrids stuff like that it's like this parallel reality that's running right alongside everybody right now and right now everybody's looking at it going holy shit that's the future and everybody's designing it for that there's going to be a point where that needs to be just regular yeah. It needs to be like regular stuff. That's and where you're starting to see you're going to see the electric F150 in a year or two. And that's going to be the regular stuff. It's got to be I I would I would if someone if they would just come out with a, a the thing is is that everything looks stupid. It's all bubbly. <laughs> it's all bubbly and round and I just I kind of like squarish things. Right. And it, nothing can just because it's got to be aerodynamic. It's got to be this, it's got to be that. So it's got to look like an egg that got Well, that and regulations for crash standards. I know where the bumpers have to be. And Fuck pedestrians. Let's just <laughs> Who cares? Run them over. Wow. On that note, we will see you guys on Friday. We really appreciate you hanging out. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Frank. We will uh we'll see you uh later this week. Take care. <laughs>